0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling
0: Hello and welcome to Evangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week's episode is a special crossover episode with my fellow Irreverent Media Group podcasters, Justin and Sarah over at Rev Covery. Their show is about people leaving full-time ministry and is a wonderful podcast. I've also got an episode with them earlier in the feed that you can check out, as well as just go and check out their show. What we got together to talk about in this episode that you're about to hear is the concept of burnout and how it applies both to full-time ministry, religious burnout, as well as in the second part of the conversation, we talk about post-religious burnout, what it's like to participate in spaces like evangelical or deconstruction type spaces. It's not really representative of everyone's experience, obviously. These are three white people talking. It's really just a single conversation that explores this topic that I hope we'll hear other conversations about elsewhere online. But it was just really wonderful to get together to talk to Justin and Sarah about these issues. We do not, you know, come to any necessar- necessary or universal conclusions. But it is something that I think we all have some experience with and hopefully can contribute to this conversation. As always, you can support this show via a subscription to my Substack publication, the Post Evangelical Post, because all of my ideas begin as puns. You can subscribe for free, or you can subscribe at four, six, or eight dollars a month and get access to ad-free podcast feeds, as well as a handful of other things. I donate 25% of net revenue to the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and White Homework. You can learn more about that at postevangelicalpost.com slash about. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special joint episode between Exvangelical and the Rev Covery podcast. I have with me today Sarah Heath and Justin Gentry from Rev Covery. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hi, friends.
1: Hi. It's so good to see you guys.
0: That's good to be here. So if you are a fan of either of these shows or a fan of Irreverent in general, we're here to explore a sort of joint topic that that we'll get into and talk about at length because that's what we do as podcasters. But the the topic today is burnout, and the reason why I wanted to talk with Justin and Sarah is because as their work on Rev Covery shows, like a uh, uh, one part of the pastoral experience of for folks that take leadership roles in evangelical churches and other denominations is an aspect of burnout. There's been lots of news coverage about pastoral burnout since the pandemic, and it predates the pandemic, but certainly. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But the pandemic itself did exacerbate a lot of existing issues for people serving as pastors around the world. So I want to start our conversation on burnout to talk first about what it's like to burn out as leaders or volunteers or pastors within the christian systems Uh, and then then in the sort of second half we'll talk about what it means to burn out or experience i don't know i don't even necessarily know how to frame it we'll get into it but uh what burnout might look with these sort of conversations we have after we leave organized
1: religion or after we leave it's like residual burnout it's like is there a word after you've burnt out? Is there like a flame? There's like the ash and like the ash and yeah. stuff after. Mm-hmm. What is that called?
3: The burnt out fireman Colin. Burnt
1: out. The burnt. It's like that. You don't think you could burn out more,
0: but you're yeah.
1: still like your your yeah. ember. Yeah,
0: <laughs> exactly. And I mean, the one thing I I sort of think about there's as far as. The metaphor of being on fire for God—you know—that one was something that. It was... only takes a
1: spark. Sorry, I should have tra- uh, trauma-activated warning to get a fire going. Unless you burnt out, then oh it takes more than a spark, and it's like really quicker than you think. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. <laughs> that's
0: that's fine. I yeah. So I mean, I think about that term on fire for God in a different sort of way, because I think if anyone goes through the sort of, whether it's faith shift or deconstruction or whatever language you ascribe to it, this process of, this personal and painful process of changing your beliefs, a lot of the times that involves burnout. So I, I know we're sort of co-hosting this conversation, but I want to start by asking the two of you, Sarah, if you want to go first and then sure. Justin, you know, what Burnout was like, and if you, if and how you experienced it while you were a pastor,
1: yeah, sure. So, you know, we start recovery by saying how long we served, and we realize like so much of our language sounds like we did prison time, <laughs> but I did. So, I served for 16 years in full time ministry, and now I have been 17 years affiliated with the United Methodist Church, and actually, that's why I'm in Hawaii right now. I'm coming to you live from Hawaii. Uh, to speak at a church, which is really complicated, right? So I burnt out um, years before I was able to leave. And I think for me, how I, how I knew this was happening was all the reasons that I got into it. So like, I loved people, like I loved meeting people's needs. I loved being part of their lives, being part of their stories. I loved just even the opportunity to get to know new people. So what burning out looked like for me was that I couldn't handle one more expectation upon me. I couldn't handle one more text message that felt like there was like something to read between the lines. When I say my body actually had like reactions to things. So burnout for me was after years and years of trying to meet everybody's expectations and everybody's needs, and even then still not getting it you know, not ever feeling like I was reaching a, a point of like, I'm done. So imagine if every night when you went to bed, and I know so many people can relate to this, not just in ministry, but every night when I went to bed, I was thinking about all the things that I failed at. What did I not do today? Who's going to be angry tomorrow? What do I need to get done? And, and, it, and then you add in the spiritual component of that. like, And I also have to give like a really compelling message this sunday because i was as well as being a i was a lead pastor at a church and I, it was a new start revitalization experience so it was just trying to get new people to get involved trying to sell the thing all the time and i try to explain it to friends who have never worked in ministry like imagine if the product that you're supposed to pitch you can never put down so like i wear mm-hmm. hats all the time and i'm imagining like if i walked around and people just constantly asked me about my hat And whether I was wearing a hat or not, I felt like I needed to talk about it. And then I needed, people always knew I had an opinion about a hat. Like you're constantly engaged. There's no downtime and your body feels that. And you feel that. And like my back would ache. And it's fascinating. I'm even having some of those physical manifestations being back in sort of some of these settings and having some of these conversations where I hurt and I'm stressed out. And it would be like, They also call it like secondary trauma. So for me, a lot of the folks within my community were people who, and we're going to talk about this later, I know, people who had been traumatized by church experiences. And so then they were coming to me. And so I was always kind of waiting for the moment when I would say the thing that would set them off. And I didn't know it was activating their trauma. And so it, because I care so much about people, the signs for me that I was burnt out, was that I no longer could be empathetic for myself in some way. Like I couldn't even respond in a way to people that wasn't, a sh- wasn't acting sometimes. Like it was like one more person telling me that they were going through something. I could be present to it because I care about people. But it just was like, it was like I couldn't add to the sense that everything was falling apart all the time. And so add to that a global pandemic. Um, my last year was in the pa- pandemic. And just Mm. constantly having to be adjusting all the things like nothing was normal. So imagine you're trying to re you're learning your job new all the time. So you're like, just trying to be creative. You're trying to keep people there, all of your money that you like to run your, you know, business, whatever you're doing, like is coming in from your, you know, quote unquote, your customers, but your customers are all like nebulous and all over the place. And there's no, it was just, it was so much. And I, You know, I was getting angry when I, I'm not like an angry person. And so that was very hard for me. There's just so much to be said about burnout. I think the thing that was fascinating for me is my cell phone. I would get a text message and my body would immediately react. So I have it on my phone where it just says the person's name. It doesn't say what they would say. I always assumed it was going to be one more thing for me to do. And then the other part that I'll say about burnout that was unique to my experience within church settings is that everybody had an opinion about how I was doing my job which is not something you experience as much in other jobs. So like the example I give is my friend is a lawyer and I assume he's a good lawyer. When we go to a party there probably aren't that many people in the room who know whether or not he's a good lawyer.
0: <laughs> yeah, they weren't like um were you disbarred? Do you have any
3: judgments against you? Do you? Like-
1: right. Right. There's like <laughs> the assumption is he's a good lawyer. Yeah. But oftentimes,
3: so they didn't read like a true crime novel one time and assume, <laughs> like, oh, I I can definitely talk to him about his job right. and tell him how to do it better. Right.
1: Whereas <laughs> my job was one where people I would be at parties and people would be talking about either how good I was at my job or all the things they wish would change about the people that did the job that I do at their community, whatever it might be. My job was never neutral. So burnout for me was never being allowed to be neutral, so never turning off. And I'm an enneagram three, and so like that will burn you out so fast because I just didn't know how to turn off on my own or set boundaries that I was comfortable with. And the last thing I'll say, I um I run with a really good friend of mine. He's like one of my best friends. We run together, and we have this um, tradition of going and getting coffee after we run, and then I. We usually like walk around my neighborhood and there is this lawn that for whatever reason they have like a fence and then they have this like one just like one part of a fence just like so imagine their lawn so they're like driveway splits the fence but they decided instead of like let's just not put a fence over there to just have this like piece of fence in the middle of a lawn so can you picture this there's like a fence around everything a driveway, and then one little piece of a fence. And my friend <laughs> said to me once, Sarah, that's your boundaries when you were in ministry. Like it looked <laughs> like they were there, but really anyone could get around them. And everybody thought they were special because they could get around yep. your boundaries. And so I think, yeah, that's kind of how I got burnt out. There's lots of stories that we tell on recovery. It's, it's really fascinating. Even today, I need to start sending them to you again. We get messages almost daily from people who are like, thank you. I haven't heard my story told before,
0: yeah, and that's what's so so great about the approach that that you have with your show is that you're giving voice to those folks that uh, so much of what you just said, Sarah just em- emphasizes how very performative the position of being a pastor is of you know being a professional religious person just based on the sort of culture that we've created around it means that you have to be uh, sort of a professional, perfect person
1: <laughs> and like, even with the best of intentions, that's the thing that I think is mm-hmm. really important for people mm-hmm. to know. like even with the best of intentions, even when you get into it for the right reasons, even when if quote unquote right reasons, you, you still have a level of performative because nobody is going to be that great all the time. The other thing I think that's really difficult for people to understand, and so if you've never been, particularly if you're a preaching pastor, imagine. Mm-hmm. You have at your job because I have friends who work in all kinds of different fields and they'll be really nervous about a presentation. And I have so much empathy and, like, oh, yeah, that's got to be. And they're like, man, I have a presentation at the end of this month and I've been working so hard about it. And I one time was talking to my friend and I said, oh, that was me every week. (laughs) Yeah. And (laughs) the thing that's different is when you go in to present to your office, your whole office isn't deciding whether or not they're going to come back next week based on whether or not they liked the
2: presentation
3: you gave well because your whole office is like wow presentations are hard they make me nervous Mm -hmm. like you know for a lot of times like you don't i mean there's some people that will do it but anytime i've sat down for an office presentation very little is spent on like critiquing the presentation itself i mean sometimes they're like it was kind of boring or you know but it, it's more boring because it's just like work related. It's not boring because they're a bad speaker, you know, sometimes like I, the ones I've been, where it's like, I'm mad I have to sit through this, not I'm mad at the person that's giving the presentation. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Well, and I was thinking about this in particular. This guy that I is in my room group was talking about how he had to go to this conference with all of the executives he works in engineering from his company. And he's like, there's this guy who's just an incredible boss. Like, he's amazing. He's the CEO. And he got up to talk and he was like, he was so boring. And he goes, (laughs) and it made me love him more. Because I thought, here's this brilliant, genius business guy who's human just like me. And I don't think that Sundays when I didn't inspire people, people were like, man, Sarah was off this week, man. She's just like us. You know what I mean? <laughs> Instead it was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Something's wrong with Sarah. Like, I don't know. Should we pull our money? Should we like figure out? And she said one thing that kind of offended me a little bit and maybe like, you know, she like, it was always this, like, is what I'm going to say offensive to anyone in any way, shape or form. And I know that we're, like, obviously that's like not shouldn't be the thing that we're thinking about, but it is the thing, especially again, remember, I'm working with largely marginalized communities, largely people who have been harmed by the church before. And so there were so many expectations in the room. And then I'm supposed to like encourage people, but then also like challenge them to be better, but then also like make sure it fits into like a nice tight 25 minute thing. And that was just part of my job. And when I say just part of my job, it was like a sliver of my job. And the rest of it was behind a curtain and working so hard. And so that's kind of-
0: you're also an accountant and a groundskeeper. Yes. And, a,
1: and for me, yeah, I was flipping and, a literal a building. Person. So I was like mm-hmm. doing plumbing and like all this stuff. And it, I don't want to complain, but I also want to recognize that my burnout was real. And, it, and it me, I'm not doing anyone any favors by being a superhero. And then the person that follows has to do the same thing. I'm saying that what I was asked to do, no human could do and no human should do. And I worked for a system that refuses to believe that that's the truth, and so we just keep sending solo pastors into something that no one could succeed at. No one.
3: Yeah. That was my burnout and, story. And it's,
1: <laughs> Sorry, guys, that was long. Yeah.
3: Well, and pastoral ministry is kind of a classic example of like an iceberg type job. Like, what people see is the presentation on Sunday, mm-hmm. which is not the very, very small part of your job. Or I should say it's a very big part of your job as far as, like, this is what you're graded on. But the amount of time you actually, most pastors actually get into putting into it is very small. And that's not your only speaking engagement that week. Typically, like, on a typical week, I was preparing at least three group presentations of some kind, whether they were going to be interactive or me preaching or whatever. That was on a typical week. Sometimes it'd be five or six. You know, different, unique performances, for lack of a better, term. with like
1: actual, like emotional meaning. Like for me, it was like always funerals and yeah. weddings and all these other things too. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Not a, not just the not just the group presentation. It's like l- literal, like sacred rites that are entrusted to you. Right. That, yes, <laughs> like that are imbued with a lot of meaning to people. And like, it's also it. they're I'm sure they're meaningful for the pastor. And sometimes they're also the thing that has to be done that day. Like both right. things can be true. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. We
1: were just talking about it today. My friend who here just did a funeral. He was like, I don't know this person. And when you don't know the person that you're doing a funeral for, it's really hard to figure that stuff out. And so he was
3: oh my God. exhausted
1: oh my God. and trying to like mine from the family and no one would talk about the person. So he was like, I don't know how to do this.
3: Yeah. My first, the first funeral I did, was somebody that the senior pastor was out of? I think actually the senior pastor that they loved, they loved the senior pastor. He was very beloved in the community. He had been sent to Africa for some kind of like district, something or other. So he was gone for a month. So I was like, me piloting the ship here as a 23 year old. And then somebody in the congregation died rather. Kind of suddenly, relatively young person, you know, to die. They were in their 50s, I think. And they're like, all right, you got to do the funeral, bud. And so, like, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I, I think I did a pretty good job, given the circumstances. But, like, they don't really prepare you in in seminary for, like, you get your little ritual book. Like, okay, this is how a funeral goes. And then you ask the family, so is there anything that you would like me to include? And it's just blank stares because they're in grief. And they're like, this is what we're paying you to do. yeah (laughs) like you know and like do they want this to be long do they want this to be short what is long what is short you know depending on you know like there's there's all those like technical things then it's like oh wait i actually have to make this meaningful because we're remembering this person's life and i don't even know them but i have to present in a way that like isn't disingenuous but is also warm and kind like it that's not something they cover at toastmasters oh sure yeah.
1: Yeah, usually you're not giving a like speech that is being recorded and then will be watched every year on the anniversary. Like wedding stuff is, I love weddings. I still do weddings all the time. But it is hard to know that, like, oh, people are going to like, if I mess this up, this is going to be like, my goal always is not to be the YouTube pastor. Like, don't (laughs) do anything so weird that it ends up on YouTube. Like, don't say the wrong thing don't do the wrong don't fall like all of these things which again you, you take one little piece of what burnout people get burnt out on right and and like you said it's an iceberg and so so much other stuff is weighing in on it and it was the constant i didn't get that done i didn't get that done and then The jokes of, well, you only work one hour a week, so like, I don't know why you're tired. (laughs) Oh, jeez. And you're like, Oh man, I don't know how to explain to you that like literally my brain never stops thinking about my job. And I actually can hear every comment you guys say, but I have to act like I don't know that you just said that about me. (laughs) And or my staff is really difficult sometimes, but I still need to be their pastor, their friend and their boss. Like the, when you think of like industrial organizational psychology, the way that churches are run are absolutely, there is, there is no industrial psychologist that will tell you that any of it's a good idea.
3: Like, let me just, I'm on the Mayo Clinic website. Let's talk about things that contribute to burnout. So lack of control in your job. And that's, that's, that's what you sign up for in ministry. Unclear job expectations. (laughs) dysfunctional workplace dynamics would you like me to continue <laughs> <laughs> like
1: extremes
3: of activity yeah <laughs> uh lack of social support and work life imbalance are all the three main contributors to burnout in the workplace and i would even say i quote-unquote healthy church has most of these yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and and again, this isn't me saying like churches should all be burnt down or whatever. But I do think what we try to do and what we want to do is we want to raise awareness to the fact that this is an impossible job. The job of pastor is impossible, and and so it, it attracts very well-meaning people that get completely ground up, and it attracts people that maybe if they weren't predatory when they got in, they become predatory because there is just. So much stress and pressure that if you if you don't have a really tight grip on your own vices, you're going to find a way to blow off steam. Yeah. And it it rewards burnout.
0: Right. It rewards
3: and it rewards those things, too, which is even worse. Like for me, burnout definitely was me giving into excess. You know, my excess was like eating a ton, working out a ton, playing The Witcher 3 literally for 12 hours straight one time. Um, Wait, because it was just like The Witcher, I the like TV show, out.
1: or was it a video game?
3: No, the video it was a game, video yes. game. Okay, it was like an, yeah, it was in an- it was a book, it was a book, and then, then it was a video game, and then it was a I'm just gonna say it and not a great show. Great. Okay,
1: first of all, this is where it, I think this is important that you guys understand that the three of us are actually friends. I never was someone who was into this like fantasy world. I feel like Justin and some other friends of mine have kind of helped me like transition more into that my brother is into that stuff a little bit more and so he introduced me to the witcher and i think it's a fantastic show but i think i might be a little bit just because he's so good looking
0: oh he looks amazing in that show
3: he does i mean he looks very good in real life guys i I think henry cavill i like him as a person for sure as a genuine role model as someone who works out and i feel like works out really hard great um, and he's
0: very honest about the fact that he has tons of support
3: and that his physique yes. is not is not achievable by most if by someone who's not being paid to do it. Exactly. Also um, the yes. fact
1: that he's dating a really powerful woman I love that too. And he asks everyone yeah, to leave so, him the heck alone. <laughs> I love that
3: wonderful, wonderful guy. Builds computers like for fun, nerdy as hell. Like, you want to? Yeah, you wanna, see guys, yeah, you want to talk a nerdy? Warhammer, like Warhammer. Yes, he paints Warhammer minis. Like, and if you know what that means, you're a nerd. You're so freaking uh,
0: nerdy. I don't <laughs> like,
2: know. I don't if know you what you're any just of knowing what that means,
0: Warhammer is a thing that that regular
3: nerds think is nerdy. Like <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, that's that's the, pro- that's <laughs> the best way to describe it. Yet it tempts me so. I mean,
1: to get back on topic, though, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense, though, to me so much that it's escapism. So whatever your escapism, whatever your coping mechanism is, you can recognize that you're burning out when it's no longer fun. It's I have to do this.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, for me, like with that one thing, the reason I mentioned The Witcher 3 was because there was I was burning out I could feel I was burning out I was not happy and then my spouse she had to leave for the weekend and she took the kids and so it was just me in the house by myself so it's like I just had like a moment to kind of decompress mm-hmm. and it was like I was either eating or playing video games or kind of doing both at the same time I could not even stop myself Like, I I mean, it's probably good I didn't have other vices to lean on because it was just like I just completely got undone. And I've noticed that about myself when I am kind of like riding the edge of burnout. It's when I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to zone out for a moment. And a moment is a day or three. And and again, it's but then like there's all this shame because it's like I'm supposed to be saving souls. I'm supposed to be you know, whatever. This was actually over a weekend, so it's not like I didn't show up to work or something. But it was like, yeah, there were many times I would just be in my office, like, just kind of staring, and then it's like, I, and, and just knowing, like, I have to, I am preparing a talk for three kids that are suicidal, a couple kids that are closeted LGBTQ, and some of them are all, were also suicidal, some, you know, with, with support, you know, this kid, when they leave is going to go home to a family situation that I am desperate to get them out of. Like, so this is my audience. And, and there are just some days where it it becomes way too much. And, and again, this isn't us complaining or being like, we couldn't hack it. We did this for well over a decade and we probably could have done it for more, but I think it's, I think it becomes a point where I think you reach a decision point. This is just my theory. And this isn't, Maybe everybody, but I think there's a lot of people in ministry that reach this kind of burnout point. And then you have a decision where I can try to pursue my authentic self, which is probably going to mean leaving. Mm. Not for everybody, but I think for a lot of people, it's like because I have I've had to live a lie in order to make this work. And some people do have the opportunity to be super authentic and still in ministry. And it's an incredible privilege, I think. Uh, We've had a couple of them on our show. Or you decide, I have to leave at any cost. Or, unfortunately for a lot of people, they just then put their authenticity on a shelf because they don't see a way out. And those are the folks that are like, quote they retire from ministry, quote unquote, but they look dead inside. Their spouses look dead inside. I remember meeting them at pastors' conferences. You know, we get together, at all these massive pastors' conferences. They would fly people out, you know, and like you meet these like denominational leaders, like these, these are the people, th- this is the end goal. Like for all you young guys, like the end goal is to be whoever this person is
0: district superintendent or something like
3: that. Yeah. District, you know, or whatever. Just this, you know, and then you're we're like, we're all like Wesleyan ish. So <laughs> yeah, you meet them and it's like, I never want to be you like your feel your presence in a room your like anything and th- and this is again I, I, I almost know what Sarah's gonna say but it's like I if this is the best if this is the end goal like what am I doing here I would leave all of those with that feeling like what am I doing yeah and that sort of tightrope you have to walk at all times to to get think- that far
1: and then like the other part is so like um, <laughs> there there was this like movie about all the kids in the local area of where I'm from. It was called The Race to Nowhere. And it was about all these kids who are working so hard to get scholarships to go to college. And then like th- there's a rate and, and you feel like you're in a race, but you don't actually know where you're going. And I think that is sort of for me, the realization was when I would talk to these people like, well, everyone wants to have that job. You want to do that thing. And then I would talk to these people and they didn't want to be doing that thing. And for me, the other layer, too, was, you know, I was a single woman who didn't have a lot of women above me that had healthy relationships. And in fact, most women who were doing the jobs that are quote unquote above me were single because our society, particularly within Christianity, couldn't figure out how to partner or what a partnership would look like for women who are doing this work because it's like even more expectation of like you just never stop working and the flip side of burnout which i know is where we're a little bit headed next is that it is so hard to come out of it and you don't know how to balance after it right Right. like it's a it's a lack of balance and then it's almost like you don't you don't know how to find your bearings again i'm gonna flip the thing on you a little bit when you like, when you were kind of so involved in all of this, and do you feel like you had the sense of burnout? As like, did you ever work in full time ministry?
0: I did not. So like, I just the the very cliff notes version of the of this is that you know, uh, Justin and I actually were at the same christian college uh, and i just i had such a uh, at the same time we didn't know each other at the time actually even though it was small we just ran in different circles it was a very clicky place you weren't um, in the
1: same dungeons and dragons <laughs> group
0: no we were not no, i, we I would have had a, a um, much happier time at that place if, <laughs> I, do, I do too if, if they had a D group yeah. it would have been wonderful yeah uh, my favorite this, this one this one guy Calvin uh made a version of D&D for his class literature and ideas that I learned later but uh, anyways that's beside the point that's a iwoo tangent uh I didn't because I had my faith crisis my ni- my first ever sort of major faith crisis in during my freshman sophomore year of undergrad uh, and I was I selected my college with the intent of going into seminary and full time ministry. And like, I'd certainly had an idealized vision of things, you know, sort of a, imagining, you know, the sort of pastor that gets to write and, you know, gets to talk and read read a lot and all these different things.
3: Just maybe one out of every hundred pastors.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, he that was. He is of,
1: having a good time. That's what I'll say. He yes. is. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's yes, good point. Absolutely. So, whatever teaching pastor at a multi-million dollar church, like they're doing fine. But I, I, because I just felt I felt totally unworthy, like and like unworthy to shepherd other people or like be in a. I felt I was so insecure about my own faith and my own ability. Like I didn't. I always felt that pastors had to be secure in the in those things, and I didn't know that pastors faced those same sorts of doubts and that that wasn't until later. So like I kept kicking around around religion forever and I still do because it's sort of the first way I relate to life. But I did get burned out as like a as a very involved volunteer at a storefront church, you know, a very small church, you know, like as far as Attendance and everything, and you know, hosted small groups or co-led small groups, carried folding chairs like the cliche, was on the worship team, did every did lots of things, and that was that certainly led to burnout. Um, well, the
1: reason I kind of I I knew that was a little bit of a um question that was intentional because I think what Justin and I are finding through doing rough recovery is it is a it isn't just those who are on the payroll. Mm-hmm. It yep. is, we are seeing as much burnout with volunteers and, and in some ways more so with more guilt a little bit and a little bit more like people will come in and apologize to us on Discord. Like I never was in, I never was in ministry. I would, never was in full-time ministry. I wasn't on the payroll. And we're like, yeah, but you, like it's the same thing. <laughs> like what you've gone through is the same.
3: We, we interviewed Janice Legato who's, you know, and she's a wonderful, wonderful person and very interesting story with Hillsong, but it's like when she starts talking about what she did, all the things that she did, and then you realize she was not paid for any of it. I mean, there are pastors that work in full-time ministry that work that work less than she does, or she did. And, and I think there are some, there are many churches that have volunteers that work so very hard. Uh, and
1: I would... I would say it's probably the pastor that's reading and writing and doing all that. It, it then falls onto the volunteers. So I, yeah, when you yeah, made yeah. that statement, I thought about the pastor that Gina shared, Gina shared with us about. I was like, oh, he was the one. And you know what? Even he burnt out and did something incredibly terrible to someone else where he had this like hidden relationship and they had no idea who he was. Because to me, it was like he was trying to get away from who he was. Right. Like none of us, the job is impossible. If if it has all the expectations that we have put on it as evangelicals have put on it, I don't think those things existed before. I think like and maybe this is my like little, I don't know, bias. When I watch like British television and I see like the vicar who lives in the city and he literally his salary is taken care of or her salary is taken care of. And, yeah, there's a lot of dealing with people and all that sort of stuff. But It just feels like the expectations are a little bit different. And yeah, it just feels like once we also needed to be influencers and all these things that like at the time seemed like really great, we want to change the world for Jesus and all this sort of stuff, like your faith shifts. And then you're like, well, I don't have that as the selling feature anymore. So why am I doing all of this? And then burnout just seems Mm -hmm. inevitable. Not just burnout, like physical burnout. We're talking like mental social burnout spiritual, spiritual burnout, burnout. Like, the thing that we hear again and again in our discord with our folks from patreon who are just amazing they're literally the best people on earth but is like i'm learning how to renegotiate friendships i'm renegotiating like work-life balance i'm renegotiating all of these things and they're both people in full-time industry and people who are just volunteers
0: yeah and then there is like that exploitation on either side uh, right. and i mean like that is I'm sure that's loaded language for people that are that and that's not to say not hashtag not all churches or whatever, but like at the same time, it's useful to be honest about the things at the the things at play in in a local congregation. Let's just talk about local congregations like if you broaden it out like i I don't necessarily know how to talk about like how each individual denomination is run and whether those things are exploitative, but like essentially the churches, even though they are tax exempt and all these things, they still operate within capitalism. And while we've been talking, I I sort of remembered one time I posted a take on Twitter. Cause that's what Twitter's for. It's for takes and jokes. And uh, I posted a take that was basically like if we had if everybody had a universal basic income, then there would actually be a lot more innovation. Like from even from a business perspective, I see a very good conservative basis for something like universal basic income and universal health care, because that means people could take more risks. And Justin chimed in and was like, "Man, you wouldn't believe what pastors would say if they could challenge their congregations, mm-hmm. you know." And that yep. was that was that was like. As you know, having this experience as being a full time minister and pastor, like the very idea that you can challenge your congregation, if that was guaranteed, damn, you know, what would we see? But but like this exploitation of an undervaluing of different types of skills, like because to both of your points, it's not just the sermon, it's the, you know, mental health crisis calls that you just have to field. Or what, or like something else is happening? Like, like the the fact that pastors are also expected to be de facto social workers or accountants or anything else is a huge, huge
3: burden or toll or w- weight. I operated as a social worker, and let, let me just well, let me preface before I get into this: I realize that I am none of these things. I am not good at these things. There are people that are trained that would have been better than me, but I'm also working with poor people and I'm, or I'm working with people that have mental health problems, or I'm working with people that have been burnt by that system. So now they're coming to the church to get the exact same thing. So I would definitely always direct people to the proper services. At the same time, though, as a pastor, sometimes you, it's, it's they either get care or they don't. So we're there many times where it's like, you know, I would get a call at 10, 11 o'clock and fake name Johnny has run off and is threatening to commit suicide. Can you go find him? Uh,
0: <laughs> you're supposed to Johnny, say I'm a therapist. You're supposed to say no. Like, I mean that's an end yeah
1: Yeah. like once again the visual image of the of the fence guys like there's ways around that little fence there has to be
3: and you know i i was lucky i always built teams of folks that knew what they were doing in those kind of situations uh, but not every pastor has that but it's like i mean honestly it's just like well shit like you get those phone calls you're like "I, i i don't know what to do and that Times maybe 52 of those a year, at least. And I was f- very fortunate in that I never had a student actually commit suicide. I never had a student really blow out in a way that was very tragic. I was always able to get them to the proper services or realize, okay, this is them needing attention, you know. And obviously, if they need attention that badly, then I'm going to give them attention. But I was very fortunate there, but man, you have a single bad call in an impossible situation and that can, that's going to mess you up. And so, and that's, that's what you risk. You are risking so much every week if you're doing your job right, because if you're doing your job wrong, no one's coming to you. Right. You know, and then people just struggle on their own or, you know, so that, that's the, that's the weird balance of like, I'm doing the right thing in the sense that I'm offering a service, but it's a very open-ended invitation, and people feel very free with this relationship. I, I also think that people, when they leave church, feel very free in their relationships with folks that they've attached themselves to, which can create all manner of other issues that just kind of keep bubbling out from this culture that we call church and how church is done. It, even when you leave, you didn't leave. In a lot of ways, your relays of, of relating to people in authority, your relate, ways of relating to friends and things like that without a lot of work that still needs addressed. I needed addressed in me, too, because it's like I would keep saying I'm not Superman and I, I, I'm i not, but I, people kept asking me to be Superman. Can you please be Superman for
1: Also me? add the layer of confidentiality. So that was the one thing that people are quite surprised about. I would
3: always report to, by the way,
1: for the therapist. Yes, that just so listening. you know, we Ooh. would always report. I <laughs> yes. am a mandatory reporter. I still behave in a way yes. that has that. But on a Sunday morning or whenever a gathering would happen, I'd be looking out and I would often know so many stories that are painful and hard. But imagine if a therapist was also required to hang out with every single person they're having conversations with. Like, could you imagine, because I was talking to my friend, I was like, how do you as a therapist, she said, Sarah, we have boundaries set into our profession that you don't have.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking when I established a relationship with a therapist once, they said to me, if you see me in public, because we live in the same community or near the same community, you have every right to walk away. Like, as soon as you see me in public, I, we do not have to talk outside of this office. And like there there is no there is no equivalent whatsoever within ministry and I think that I think that's one of the reasons that church that's one of the you know sort of the appeals I I feel as a someone who is a congregant and a volunteer but also a congregant like one of the things that makes you stay is you love the community, right? You love the sense of camaraderie you have. But that is different when you are the leader and you don't, it's not visible. It's, it's an invisible sort of thing until, unless you're in that position. And like, I certainly, as when I was in my twenties and everything, I knew people that were in seminary or had had their first pastoral positions and that sort of thing. Because as I said, I was always sort of close to these things and participating in them, even though I wasn't, In full-time ministry, myself, but those people that I knew that were in full-time ministry, whenever they had an opportunity to talk to someone that wasn't their congregant, like you could definitely tell there was a shift in their behavior, that they were able to relax a little bit, like in a way that they just couldn't before, and that that is a that's certainly a statement to what it's the pressure that is on local pastors.
3: I had students notice it. I took a group of students out to uh, the Rocky mountains for like, just kind of a retreat kind of thing. And a lot of those students were students I was closer to. And, and, you know, I had volunteers and everything. It wasn't just me, but I had a couple of students comment, like you're different out here. Mm, mm-hmm. Like that's cause I'm not being constantly monitored. <laughs> out <here laughs> Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And It is also interesting too. like a lot of people when they come to the pastor, they don't, they don't necessarily need therapy. They need a buddy. And I think the ministry of being someone's buddy is wonderful. But when you're the buddy to a hundred people, like who's your buddy like that, that becomes a thing. And yeah, like, like therapists, like therapists have told me, like, if I see you in public, I will ignore you. You can come up and talk to me. You can initiate that, but I'm not going to do that because legally I can't tell anyone that I'm in therapy with you. And like, That's actually kind of a beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, when you're the minister, it's like, yeah, you're not just like listening to people's deep, dark secrets. You're also like supposed to hang out at the barbecue with them. And I was in a parsonage for a season of time in ministry. And it was like we had just had a baby. Well, we didn't have the baby. She had the baby. A baby had entered our home. Uh, That was ours. And.
1: (laughs) Like For the record, some, like, I don't con- think you could have said that more awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, because true. both Blake and true. I are picturing I, a baby just walking into your home. Just waltzing into my home.
3: This is ours now. Yeah. Um, like boss baby wearing uh, a tux. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I 100 percent saw a um, baby in a tux.
3: <laughs> but we we had people comment like, Oh, you're closing the blinds a lot more now. Oh my gosh. Like, stop it. <laughs> just like, like, well, first off. Yes, because there's a baby, but two like stop. <laughs> I, yeah, like what have you? What else have you noticed? <laughs> oh my gosh, Are, you know, oh my gosh, that is that is there is, is I don't think can't think of another job where that's like you know it's normal. So
1: I can think <laughs> we have been like obviously this is all stuff that folks think about, but then we add in that this is a profession that was created before the dawn of social media when you know you know before we were even getting on this we we all talked about this that so many you know this idea of community and para church relation or para sorry para social relationships guys like Mm -hmm. when you have been church uh employee or employee adjacent or even a volunteer or even like been a member of a church i feel like we don't know how to do relationships in quote unquote normal ways but I want to say boundaries have changed. We aren't teaching kids how to have relationships online. We're not teaching kids what para- parasocial relationships are. We don't know. Our expectations about people and what we know about people, we know more. So I was thinking about this idea of like, well, we don't close our blinds or whatever. And I understand that people are posting things for themselves on social media, right, of themselves. And so it feels like, well, they opened their blinds, so I'm allowed to look in. But, but then the idea that now you need to be or you know their whole life, it's like our brains haven't figured out how to have relationships in this setting. And then you throw in a lot of the people that we encounter in online spaces were once very involved in church spaces I think it's like a double we don't know what to do and then that breeds burnout
0: right and I think that's a that's a great sort of segue because you both are in this interesting position of having been on sort of both sides of this you've been the person that is literal official public face of you know your faith community in the local space. And then now you participate in these sort of spaces that are digital, but like there's, there's like a, there's a, um, a book called because internet by Gretchen McCulloch and she's a linguist. And she talks about, uh, she talks about, you know, how, how language arrives, uh, and is used online. Uh, but they, but she has, in her book because internet talks about how the internet has become another third place. The third place being the first place being your home, the second place being your work and the third place being a public neutral space say, or Starbucks, Starbucks or the public's or a library. It was, you know, you know, but now, especially because of the pandemic it's accelerated all these factors of like the, the places that we inhabit for our disembodied, digital spaces that are oftentimes by default public and we never really know who's watching we never really know who's observing so we have to be very cognizant of what we post or you know what we say and that definitely presents a lot of different a lot of different challenges and then from there <laughs> the final thing i'll mention is that in addition to all that you have algorithms at work that feed you the things that you that you engage with so now i think it's a i think it's a net benefit that there are conversations that are happening constantly from so many different creators like uh, the folks that are in irreverent are just a small sample of all the different people that are talking about these things from different perspectives and it's really good to have those conversations but now we're experiencing this thing where we can actually i i don't know whether to call it burnout but we can, we feel sort of overexposed to these sort of conversations. And as a, even as a creator in the space, like, you know, sometimes it it, it can be really, really great. And then there are some days where it's like, all right, I just want to read about, you know, give me some comic book TikToks or something. (laughs) Like, uh, (laughs) you know, like it doesn't always have to be on brand. And like TikTok is the one, the one place where, I actually see an active resistance, like a lot of creators that are that are on there say no niches, like which I think is interesting because, like Instagram and Twitter, you always had to find your niche and then refine it until, eventually, the creator would burn out, which I think we've seen. You know, I'm not here to talk about other people's experiences, but I I think some people. You know, people enter and leave this space because because it can be eventually the thing you've processed and you need to move on from, which I think is legitimate. So I'm sorry, I've talked too much there.
1: (laughs) No, I think you're just sort of setting the table for the conversation because I think there is what I have realized is that I entered a space where people are tender and raw and traumatized as someone who is tender and raw and traumatized and unaware. And so my work sometimes has been to sort of figure out, okay, what are my tender and raw and traumatized places that I'm like projecting onto people? And how do I let go of my fear that I am going to harm other people? How do I get to engage in this space without feeling like I need to be an expert? Because for so long, that was my role. How can I just be a co-experiencer? How? You know, and, and so you're constantly doing nuanced things. And so you're already burnt out and then you're burnt out again. I knew that when I entered the space, I wasn't neutral. And the word neutral is all that keeps coming to me today for some reason is that nothing ever feels neutral. And so I think a lot of people get burnt past being burnt. If I wish there was a different word for burnt out. It's like almost like paralyzation, like I can't anymore with any of it. And I need to be generative with something new and I can't do it in this space. Some of my friends who are very well known in this space have chosen a way that really seems to be bringing them joy that has nothing to do with this space. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I go, maybe that's better for me. But at the same time, I do. I feel really lucky within this space that I have been able to carve out places and spaces that feel brave where I can have conversations with people and I'm allowed to be a little bit human. And, um, so yeah, I don't know.
3: Yeah. And and burnout has been defined. Well, ill defined, but it's more related to like your job, at least in the way it's defined online a lot of times. So it's like, speaking of burnout, like, yes, it, it, a lot of this stuff is not my job, mm-hmm. you know, like, but it still is, can be a constant or chronic stressor that, and, and it's managing so many interesting, like, relationships. Um, because used to, I would manage relationships in a couple of different spheres. Maybe my church, my family, my job. And those would largely stay where they were. You know, so work Justin can look different than church Justin and, you know, home Justin. And that's not that big a deal. But now it's like, I'm in all these places, but I'm also managing or wondering about Twitter Justin. Because that's pervasive and everywhere. And Facebook is pervasive and everywhere. And just general internet culture is pervasive and everywhere. And and so that that creates an interesting stress on us. Humans weren't designed for this. I'll just say this right now. We talked about like pa- being a pastor is a job no one can do. I think being a human with a glowing box that makes <laughs> you sad. Like, yes, is... It's not normal. Like, that's, <laughs> right. you know, just that, that, that's not I should not say it's not normal. That's that's not what this brain was evolved to do. And and you have people, you have algorithms that are that know the brain better than you do, that are actively involved in in trying to get your attention. Like right now, I, I just opened Twitter just for kicks because uh, and it's like it's telling me that like Matt Walsh is trending. May want to check that out. Like, no, I, don't. I don't care about. I don't want to check out that.: <laughs> Who's is, like,
1: is that someone in the evangelical space?
3: No. Oh, if, if I described it, you would know, I'm, you're blessed for not yeah, knowing't Don't, um, don't say, Google, don't anything. I'm sorry. I, I didn't even want to say it because it's like, but it's also just like, that's right there, just waiting for me. And it knows, because it knows I'm an ex-evangelical and knows that he generates controversy. It's like, let's put you two together. Right, and then we'll generate more, because it generates more money for Twitter. Like, and that's... Um, it's kind of
1: like the sociologists who did The Real World. Do you guys remember the show, The Real World?
3: I do. I do remember. One we of are older
0: millennials. We remember. One of
1: my dear friends was on it. One of my dear friends from college was a... And I'll let everyone guess who it was. And she went on to make a career of being a, I guess, celebrity, kind of. Uh, reality she was on a TV bunch of, person? Yeah, she's a reality TV person. But I'll say this. They... Part of that was that we got to see a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. They have sociologists who do exactly what you're talking about, Justin. Like, what is going to be the most interesting mix we can put in a home? And I think that's the thing that's happening for us in all these spaces, right? And then add into the layer of we weren't meant to have this many relationships.
0: Yeah. I don't think. There's that. There's the... The term Dunbar's number, I think, is the term which is basically, I think it's a socio- another sociologist who says you can, the average human can essentially manage up to about 150 meaningful relationships, and then sort of anything beyond that is not necessarily tenable or doesn't necessarily fit their narrow definition. So, I mean, even, I think even there have been things like like Google Plus, I think they, they're Google Plus, or like there was another, there was another like
3: anti Facebook called All the Elder Millennial Greatest Tips. Yeah. There's, (laughs) there was another,
0: (laughs) there was another short lived social network called Path. And I think it topped out at uh, 150 friends and it was supposed to be more intimate, that sort of thing. Same thing that Twitter Circles is trying to do. Like Twitter Circles is Google Plus in 2022. Yes.
1: I don't know what a Twitter Circle is. I don't, I don't Twitter.
3: it's fine. You just it, save yourself. It's fine. It's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Run away now. Um, like Because it is ADHD catnap. It, it and, absolutely is. And TikTok is ADHD cocaine. Um, <laughs> it's true.
0: And it, true. it, it, will, actually, it I, will convince you that you have ADHD. And then, then just. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's actually don't.
1: a fascinating thing as we talk about burnout and our, our central nervous system. I was talking with my father, who was a, my dad's career was as a general practitioner. So a family physician for so many years. And we talked about this idea because I was diagnosed later on in life with ADHD. And he said, you know, we're seeing it more and more prevalent. He's like, I don't just think that it's better diagnosed now and more caught. He's like, I think we have a culture that creates in some ways environments where people become, because ADHD can actually be caused by trauma and stress or over like certain kinds of ADHD. And they're obviously parsing this out, right? Because it's not something you can scan a brain and go, there's ADHD. So it's more based on behavioral things. And so we're having this conversation about like, people are becoming more and more incapable of having like one-on-one conversations in the way that they did. I mean, all this sort of stuff. And I'm not saying that it's all evil and all this sort of stuff, because it exists. Now, what do we do? And how do we, you know, as people who talk about these things that once were faith related and all this sort of stuff, how do we care give for those people in the space, care give for those who are sh- content sharing in the space? Like there's so many layers that it makes sense to me that people would go, I'm just going to like bow out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, mm-hmm. and I think that's, yeah. I think that's fair. Like to build off of your point about like the nervous system and about how people adapt to sort of their, in part their media environments. Like um, Marshall McLuhan wrote this book called The Medium is the, the Massage An Inventory of Effects. And, um, and anyways, he, he talks about how all media is an extension of human senses. So he says, the book is an extension of the eye. The wheel is an extension of the foot. The clothing is an extension of the skin. And then uh, he wrote this in the mid-60s. And so he said, electric circuitry, as an extension of the central
3: nervous system. And to me, I have heard of that book is like weird to read and know it was written in the sixties. I
0: mean, this book, it's, it's like, it's pain. It's, I've heard it's very painfully rude. relevant. Like it's, it's incredible. And I, I always come back to it. It says, cause like electric circuitry is an extension of the central nervous system. And he wrote this in the nineteen nineteen sixty seven. says when these ratios change, men change. And I mean in the sixties, so he didn't say humanity. Interestingly enough, he had he had an abnormal brain. He had two arteries that fed his brain. Really fascinating person. Anyways, the the reason I bring that up is that like I think there's a reason why when we when we use these platforms, like we feel connected, but also we feel sort of distributed. And I ended up talking to this Catholic writer who wrote sort of spiritual biography of McLuhan, who was, he converted to Catholicism in like his 20s while he was in college and was very devout. And he actually saw, you know, he was very forward thinking, but he actually saw the way in which uh, he coined the term like global village. And he actually saw the fact that all of these things were sort of collapsing, the contexts were collapsing and things like that as a negative because we weren't, it was discarnate. It wasn't in person. The thing he valued as a Catholic was the ritual, the bodily rituals of it. And when we lose those things, like when we're conversing with someone online, so much of what's happening out, outside of the, the glowing box that makes you sad is like a whole life And so you miss those things, and I think that's what's, that reality isn't, like, any deconstruction-type space is bound by those same rules, or those same, if not rules, just conditions of the fact that, like, these are inherently sort of, as of right now, very nascent historically, very new spaces that don't have that offline support system, like in as much as the church can burn you out, there are still people that can show up, <laughs> like there are still people that can show up, there are still funds that might be able to be tapped sometimes. those things don't exist when you're just running off and making some sort of comment online. It's much more tenuous
3: yeah and and that's it's interesting that we have. We found a lot of safety in these spaces online, and that's not bad. That's something that was needed. But we're also bringing uh, Sarah's point. We're bringing a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of rawness, a lot of vulnerability. And you get 100 people like that. Together. In a space that's virtually faceless, and we're lucky it's as healthy as it is, honestly. I think it's a lot of it's testament to creators like you, Blake, that, that have tried to make spaces that are as safe as they can be. I know safe spaces can be, you know, or are no safe spaces, brave spaces, like whatever, Just as safe yeah. as they can be, as as open as they can be with a reasonable amount of sort of, of protection. But it's also it's one of those things that's like it's a constant churn because there are people leaving the church every day. hmm. That are like day one hurt coming to to us as content creators as people that are leaders. I guess I, mean, I don't know if we're leaders in this space. Um, what is What even does that mean? But then you've got people that are like that are like, <laughs> yeah, I've I've been out for ten years, and you know, and and so I think that there's a, there is that constant churn, and that's why I think spaces like this are still important. I think there has been some critique of like, why do we need you know, spaces for people that are newly deconstructing. Like, haven't we done that? It's like, well, maybe your wave did, but there are still people that are fresh off the boat that are like, I don't know if the Bible's inerrant. Like, those people still exist. And and they're just now coming to it. And I am thankful now that there are a lot more spaces that they can come to and they can, they can listen and they can learn and, and experience life to the fullest outside of church context because like they are they 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 have their bridges to, they're more bridges to get out at the same time sometimes that means there's more trolls you know like <laughs> because trolls live under bridges oh so good trolls live under bridges you like
0: that
3: <laughs> this is why they pay me the <laughs> this big bucks is
1: good <laughs> and so
3: and so I do think it becomes more we have more of a responsibility to try to protect folks but i think at the same time We also realize that there's just going to be a lot more, you know, like there are people that now make quite a bit of money. Not, not not me, not, not anyone on this call, selling materials to folks to help them deconstruct. And that's, and so I'm not going to name names, but one was pulled off the shelf because it was roundly shot down. But it's just like this is also a growing market, and so I think we need to be, I don't, we need to be careful, but also I think. I think folks, like, because I had mentioned this earlier, I think folks coming into this space are used to those more parasocial relationships of, like, now I don't have a pastor, but I have a favorite podcaster.
1: And my expectations of them are the same.
3: My expectations are the same.
1: I don't know that. And I think not everyone is this way.
3: Yeah.
0: And, yeah. And, I mean, certainly, like, you can say, we're, we're all podcasters here. We all... You know, we all have that perspective and some people can very rightly say, like, you don't, you don't know what it's like to be a listener or
3: whatever. Totally. I I do. Yeah. (laughs) I was for years. Yeah, me too. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think I just want to, I just want to be honest about, we both have to be aware that some of those expectations exist as a podcaster or as a content creator. And we have to remember that we are not a brand, we're a body. Am I an influencer? What does that even mean? Because that continues to disembody me. It does not surprise me in any way, shape or form that for so many people, the way back has been to get re into their body, to get present, to like, like be with people. My fear is that we have lost the capability of being with other people. Obviously, like when we had a global pandemic, et cetera, we couldn't be with other people. But our, our bodies and our, even in our ability to be with other people online, I feel like there's still a disembodiment. And then we believe that story that we're that person in the glowing box, right? I happen to live in a place where I know a lot of folks whose livelihoods are made from being a person on a glowing box. And the only ones that are mentally okay are the ones who live lives that are incredibly embodied. As an example, I have two friends who are really well-known actors. I can tell you that both of you, based on your age, probably had a poster of the girl when you were in high school because every guy seemed to have the same poster of her. And her and her husband live in the Hollywood Hills, and they live on a farm. Like they have horses, or not horses, right? They have chickens, and they have all these things so that (laughs) they are – Of the earth in some ways. So then HGTV wanted to make a a show about her cooking because she's a really good cook and she hosts all these people. And his response was we need to have a dummy house because people don't need to actually be coming into our home. Only people that we really know come into our home. And he has set such tight and beautiful boundaries around we are not a brand, we are people. And so their kids, like, learn to get in line when they go to Disneyland. All these things that seem really weird, like, but I think it's constantly reminding people, not just the people that they're experiencing, but reminding themselves. Because I don't think our mental health is helped by being a disembodied person who is always slinging whatever product we're being asked to sling. So I think there is, you know, why do we love Wendell Berry's work, or whoever it might be, is because these were incredibly bodied people who like lived in t- towns and lived there and were with people. And what does that look like today in this day and age? And I think, and and how are we expecting other people to behave and and then evaluating ourselves? Because I will tell you guys, I have sat with some creators that people really, really know well, they think they know well. And I mean, even... To the point of one of my dear friends saying that they barely can sleep through the night for a while was having actual panic attacks around the idea that at any moment the tide was going to turn and people are going to be angry with them for whatever it might be because there had just been the latest scandal of the, you know, someone online who said the wrong thing. And I, I think we are, the difference is when we're in an actual relationship with people, the capability of healing that fracture is so different. And it, as again, is embodied. I can see your face. When you say that thing, that's so harmful. It feels like I can sit with the empathy in a certain way and, and you can look at me and we can kind of be in each other's lives. And I think it's hard to remind ourselves of that when we want to immediately just fire back a response.
0: And it's certainly something that the, the, the platforms
3: themselves incentivize. They, right? they, they do that. And, um, I
1: went viral last week, guys, and I stopped.
3: Twitter is begging me to <laughs> call out Matt Walsh. Still, um, I don't even know who
1: he is, but he's right. But well, you don't know him,
3: yeah. He, and he doesn't care. He he, he eats he it does. up and enjoys it. It puts money in his pocket,
0: and that's the that's the the other interesting thing, right, Justin? Is that the using that example? You know, it's Matt Walsh has has ways to make money, and it's through rage, and. And yes, the, a lot of the norms of things like uh, online favor and tilt towards conservative conservatives, like they, they are very good at outrage cycles. They're very, very good at monetizing the persecution complexes that they have, even though they're so dominant in society. And I think that's one of the things that even within communities, communities, plural, I think, because I, I think one thing that's interesting is, yes, we're all three white people talking about this from our own individual perspectives, and like, and yeah, like, exactly. all those disclaimers. And the, the, I think the one thing that's a that's a benefit to the sort of broad conversations that are happening, even though they're rooted in and fraught with like initial trauma bonds and things like that. You're bonding over your shared traumas, your shared experiences. The the conversations are now so many that you can find one that represents that's close to your own lived experience, your own embodied experience, whether it's a person of color, whether it's a white person, whether it's a queer person, whether it's and so on. Like there's there's lots of representation there. At the same time, those those dynamics do not always reflect power analysis or things like that. You know, there there might be aspects of privilege that are that are known and named. But then uh, there may be th- aspects of of a sort of, uh, of thing, of dialogue online that just are not aware of what's going on. Like the incident that sort of led to me putting my show on hiatus in 2019 was that there was my family was was just suffering a very personal and private grief. And then, you know, drama happened and my spouse told me to ask me to stop. And I had to like, and like, that was just the re that was what I eventually found a way. And that process helped me, helped me develop boundaries that still serve me. But nonetheless, like there is, there are things like privilege and then there are other parts of power. Like, like Matt Walsh, if he picks on someone, he's punching down.
3: He is punching down. Pretty much everyone he's punching down. And, and, that, and that's, uh, there's so many power dynamics. There's so many more power dynamics online, and so many of them can be hidden. And, you know, obviously your face can be hidden, you know, for one. But I think it can become obsessive too, because, you know, for those of you that are former ministers that are leaving the ministry, you may feel the need to make being a Evangelical leader, your ministry. I would strongly encourage you not to for several years. You know, (laughs) don't pull I I, I say (laughs) this as a former minister. Well, I think also I think Sarah, you are in a a unique situation because you were allowed to deconstruct quite a bit in ministry. You know, I'll just speak for myself. Coming from a very conservative evangelical space, I had to wear an utter mask and then leave, and then everything fall apart that's very different than the minister that it's like in progressive spaces and is like allowed to ask a lot of those faith questions. Cause I had vocational fallout. I had faith fallout. I had relational fallout all happening in the span of a month, you know? So that that's very different. And so I think the, the former pastor to ex evangelical influencer pipeline, I don't think it's problematic when it takes place over a course of several years when it's like, I'm leaving my church and starting a podcast and joining a community and paying me money. Like, and like fella, like sit down for a second. Like you've not detoxed yet from being the toxic things that are, that are part of ministry that you think are normal because you've been in this system for so long. But let me tell you, you sit alone for a month, even you're going to realize just how unhealthy you are and just stop and listen. I I resolved, and this isn't, this is my personal thing when it comes to podcasting. I said I would not start one until I was asked. That was my kind of don't need another white guy (laughs) (laughs) in a basement, (laughs) which I'm currently in a basement. Um, You know, it wasn't until I was asked that I was like, okay, I think I feel like I'm ready to do this. And so. Figure out what I think if you're a person that's like, hey, I'm leaving, hey, I, I'm in this evangelical space. I I feel like I have something to say. Feel free to say it. Obviously, I'm not gonna tell you not to, but I would also maybe do a little internal work around what what are the things that what are my indicators that I'm getting unhealthy? What are the indicators that I'm doing this out of a out of an old off of an old script? To make this my ministry, to continue saving souls, um, to matter. whatever, it, to matter again. Like, I don't, I you know, because again, especially I'll speak as a minister, like the letdown. I, I remember this. This is like a moment. This is like a core memory kind of moment. Everywhere I moved to be a pastor, I was greeted by 20 or 30 strangers, essentially, that wanted to be my new best friend because I was their pastor. I moved here to Columbus, Ohio uh, for a job and it was like, my mom was there and that's it because (laughs) no one cared. And that's not, that's not an insult to people. It's just like, who's this dude? Like my neighbor, like said, hi, you know, like, yeah, I am your neighbor. We're going to live in proximity to each other, but not talk. And it's going to be weird. Uh, (laughs) So it's like, like that come down, like, get you to a therapist sir because that's hard because you realize just how little you matter and and i don't say that again like i am fine not mattering and or only mattering to a couple hundred people online each week if if with that and a few dozen friends like i think i think even that expectation needs to be challenged because Blake and i both as part of our undergrad were required to go to a class called world changers mm-hmm where we learned how to change the world or how imp- and how important it was for us to change the world. I'm waiting for my
0: induction into the Society of World Changers.
3: Yes. Give me, me
0: Ravi Zach- Zacharias's old slot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I will say, Blake, you have probably, I don't know about all of the World Changers, but I think you've probably moved the needle more than some of them. <laughs> Um, I think you're giving so me too I, much I d- credit, but <laughs> well, but I, 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 I'm more giving people inducted into the society of world changers less credit, um, but
1: that was the best backhanded yet forward handed compliment I've ever oh, experienced. Man, that's,
3: that's great. I yeah. I complimented and insulted at the same that's time. That's Wonderful. I, I love it.
1: I think there is too, like, I want to give exactly what you're saying. And they also... It's so difficult because you're right. There is a privilege and a power dynamic that we don't always know is under, like underpinning everything, right? Always. Mm -hmm. And yet I want to have empathy for the guy who was told that he has to matter. He has to be producing something to matter. He he needs to be an expert in the room to be in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I want to have empathy and I want other people to have empathy. I want people to pause for a second, and I cannot require that of you. I can only suggest that sometimes take a breath. You know, my mom, I'm getting a a tattoo in honor of my mom. She's going to love it. My mom always used to make us like, and maybe this isn't healthy. I don't know. But we always used to like, when someone was not being nice to us in school, my mom would always like stop us and say, like, what do you think is going on in their life that this is what, how they're being, right? And as someone who was a nurse and my dad was a doctor in a small town, often my parents knew more than we did. And my mom worked in the school system. So my mom often knew there was something going on. And so I'm getting love always because my mom always like, kind of asked us to start with love and start with what, what could be behind someone's behavior. Now, I cannot demand that of you, especially marginalized people. I'm not asking that. But what would it look like for us to pause and take a breath? and realize that we don't always know everybody's trauma. And and yes, there are people who do need to be held accountable, but maybe, I don't know. I just, I love the work of Brené Brown, who like suggests like, what if people are just trying to do their best? And sometimes that's not true, guys, but it's actually better for our mental health for us to believe that they are. Like This is, you know, sometimes. So I think it's hard because we have that, like, so some people come out feeling like they need to be experts. Some people come out, thinking that they need to be crusaders against, right? So I'm going to be the, you know, I once was a great evangelist and now I'm going to be a great anti-evangelist. I am going to be the person who holds every, you know, and it's like all of that is inhuman and that inhumane and that not who you are and doesn't start from a lens of we are all wounded walking around. Right. And many times my initial reaction if I don't take up a beat um, is not the reaction, you know, and I think about like, I wrote something that was not intended to be suggestive that I understood the marginalized story. And somebody like responded with this thing. And my first response was not great. And then I paused and I took a moment. And then I actually responded later in the day and said, hey, thanks for sharing with me that perspective. It really has got me thinking. And the person wrote back. I really thought this was going to start a fight, like a battle. And, um, but now the way that you have handled this, and this is not to pat myself on the back. Cause remember my first response was to be defensive and be like, you don't know my story. You don't know where I come from. Right. But instead it started this like beautiful dialogue about all this stuff. And and I say that to say that sometimes we need to give our central nervous systems a break because, I think we just there's so many fights being started everywhere particularly for those of us who are skewing more progressive in our lives. I mean, my my friend who's conservative said to me one day, "Progressives are great. You guys eat your young." Um <laughs> you're great for us. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know like I, I think was like,
0: that's exact and and that is one aspect of like the the thing that's that's wild and I I mean I when this is just a deep heavy side just because I think back to the thing that caused my very sincere like we had a prayer we at Justin and I's college. We had a prayer chapel that literally had a sculpture of Jesus in Gethsemane. And I like, you know, I spent a lot of time in that chapel trying to reconcile how the evangelicals, the older adult evangelicals in my life could support George W. Bush. Like and support
3: the war in Iraq. And like the war in Iraq folks, near... uh, just to give you a pink picture. Our college had Oliver North as a keynote speaker shortly <laughs> after 9/11. Yes, he did. So, yeah, just yeah, just paint a paint a picture of the environment that up.
0: <laughs> and I had friends praying for my soul because I voted for John Kerry. And those things seem so so almost childish at this point compared to, to where, how things have evolved or devolved. And so much of, you know, so much of those, those things, like that represents a lot of, a lot of change. And I think the thing that sort of, sort of unifies or is is similar and is a critique that, that people who have experienced a lot of, a lot of harassment online even within or disagreements or whatever it is. Some of it is be because of it's, it's not because they, they said something wrong or, or I'm not sure whether I'm saying this part, right. Which is that there are some people that have faced difficulties with, with this group because they, within post evangelical spaces, because they parsed a situation wrong.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think I think some of it for me is I'll use an example that I'll use a negative example in the sense of like a not saying something like I've seen people criticized for not having a hot take on a particular issue
1: are you talking about like, me because that happens to is, me too <laughs> yeah
3: yeah like I'm sure Sarah there are dozens of tweets at you saying your silence is is telling or whatever Like. Maybe I just took a day off of Twitter to be with my children, or maybe I don't have a hot take. That's one thing I really admire about my co-host Tori Williams Douglas on another podcast is she's very frank about like if I don't have a hot take, I'm just not going to have one. Like, but I think that like that criticism that is that is there. that's like, oh, you're in a progressive space, and they're doing da 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 da. You you better say something like which is such a, like an evangelical thing if we're going to be honest like i feel like that's a lot of residual fundamentalism that maybe some folks haven't dealt with and i, I know i didn't deal with for a while you don't know about da 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 you know how can you call yourself progressive or an evangelical or whatever an atheist whatever whatever happens to be if you haven't confronted whatever and like some people are like i'm on twitter to have fun or i'm on tiktok to like post like cat videos like i'm I, like i think we need to have space for people to to take up the causes they're going t- to they have the energy to take on and to take steps back when they need to take steps back and i think that it's gotten better a, a little in that arena over time but i do think that it is it is we've commodified people to a degree that maybe we don't quite understand where i i'm expecting i'm expecting like like Blake i'm expecting when Apple has a live event that you're going to do a live tweet. Yeah. And then, it like, then I ended up you, like you, having
0: meetings and I was bummed that I couldn't, yeah, that I couldn't oh, it's fine. tweet about it, you know, but uh, you you know, yes,
3: even it's, it's not, it, but, but it's like, that's a small thing, but then people are like, Oh, such and such has happened. I'm going to, I, what, a, what is, you know, what are, what are my new pastors going to say? And that's not something that necessarily a lot of people signed up for, but also, you have to I think people have to be aware that this is this is kind of online online. The online world is wild in some ways, but I think people are not brands. People are not your commodity. Um, We're definitely all the social media conglomerate's commodity, but that's just something I've noticed is the, the, the kind of like we're wanting to play call out bingo, like, like, who can I call out today for being whatever? It's like, mm, I don't I don't know that this is a healthy to be able to be hunting your own people. Yeah. And
0: I mean, I've I, I've certainly started to think about online spaces. There's a better, you know, social media is is the the term that all of these things coalesced under. But there are some people that are like Internet researchers that study culture on the Internet. And there's a person, Dana Boyd, who has written a couple of books about. Uh, They focused uh, primarily on like the network lives of teens in like the early 2010s. And they use a term that's popular amongst other researchers called networked publics. And using that idea has been far better for me to understand how these places work, because there are different things, you know, at play, like people are developing followings they're contributing to a shared culture and they may be developing their own communities with their own rules but if you are distilling that down to Instagram or TikTok you can't you can't represent all of that in a single post and and i on top of all of that on top of just the nature of these communities and the value they provide which is sort of an outlet to talk about people's traumas or they're experiencing transition away from a particular faith. They, to me, I've, I've always sort of, the, the thing that animates me is what makes people change their minds. And ne- eventually, some people just have to get, you know, they processed it. They're done talking about it publicly. Now they need to do the next thing. And to me, just as evangelicals haven't learned to leave well, there's still things to work on once we leave evangelicalism to understand how to leave well. Uh, and I know, I know that we are, we have been, we've been talking for a while and I know we solved everything, which is great. These three white people, it def- definitely wasn't just one people. conversation. It wasn't just one conversation. We solved everything for everyone, everywhere
1: for all time. And I'm really glad we did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's yeah. just for me, I walk away feeling a sense of like, there, there's a really lovely ability to say, Yeah. I've gone through what you've gone through. And and if you're in a tiny town somewhere and you've never seen that before, it's going to feel really good, right, to hear that and see it. And that's what I get often. I'll get direct messages from people who are like, hey, I just I've never seen this before. I think it's just what we were hoping to do is a self-evaluation, I think, an inner reflection and also a, a look around of how do we care give for ourselves and others in these spaces with the awareness that they are ripe for for burnout to happen. And, and and this burnout isn't vocational. This burnout is relational and has all kinds of yeah, all kinds of uh things. So, I don't think we can solve it obviously. I think we started the conversation. I would love to hear what people think. I would love to hear where people are seeing grace and empathy. I, I got to tell you the the things that I am finding really compelling lately are moments of grace and empathy and where i'm seeing people do big and lovely brave things that are you know maybe not seen by other folks all the time but like oh that was really compelling to see that person be able to say look i'm going <laughs> to you're you're all coming to my thank you so much for coming to my back but like this is not you know whatever it might be so yeah we may not have solved it all guys but i i definitely think <laughs> We at least, I hope we've started some good conversations, which I think is kind of like the goal of all of this, right? It's just to start healthy and good conversations with people you can have them with.
3: Yeah. I think just being able to name it, I think that's, that is the, I think the beauty of this community, culture, whatever, is the ability to be like, let's start the conversation because we weren't allowed to have it. We weren't allowed, you know, on, on Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, we you talk about like, we weren't allowed to make fun of the Bible, but we can now. <laughs> and. <laughs> And I think that that can be so cathartic and good. And I think, and, you know, Sarah and I work with Red Recovery, you know, giving current ministers a secret place to say, hey, I'm burnt out and I can be anonymous. Like, and that can only happen online. Like, we can't set up shops in every town with a terrible church to be like, you know, hey, come secretly over here. But we can set up a space like that online, and I think that that's a good thing. I think I think the internet is is the quintessential double edged sword in that it can be so good and so helpful, and it's brought all has brought all of us together. and Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful for the friendships that I have had, and it makes me sad that we also don't like have like teleporters that we can all teleport to each other. Right. But at the same time, though, like. I have to remember that I'm a human in a body and I have a location that I live in and other priorities and the need to sleep and I need to manage a central nervous system that does not know what's happening. (laughs) Our poor little bodies, like, you know, just like does not know, like was, was not designed for this mess. And and seeing threats everywhere. So I think we have to be, I think we just have, I think, I hope that as inter- culture progresses, there is a growing awareness that we need to interact with this differently.
1: And also thank you for giving us your time because we recognize that we have been talking about how problematic this is to the folks who have given us the space for us to be able to talk about how problematic I this mean, is. Yes.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I, I see and. this. I see all of this as extensions of things that have been going on for decades. Like, the thing is, I, I always think of the old caveman's Call song, Long Line of Leavers. Like, I come from a long line of leavers, and it's true. Like, people have been leaving the evangelical church, leaving Christianity, whatever, for a long time. They just haven't had the opportunity or mechanisms to network across the as you said, like sort of distributed geographies and things like that. And the thing to me that is valuable and has almost certainly almost like a vocational aspect to it is, is providing a place for people to discover something that's put into the public sphere that talks about these things that they can continue to participate in and they can contribute to it as well for as long as they need to. To me, it is, you know, the thing about the thing about being a consumer is that you can consume it until you're done um but if you, if you become a participant then sometimes there is a secondary grief you know if you out you know if you grow beyond the bounds of those things or to me like exvangelical is just a single adjective it's not descriptive of your entire life it's just signals part of your story but i'm i'm glad i you know I, i'm glad that these things are here i'm glad that we can have the conversations And have more, and other people can have their own conversations about this one, and there's value in that. But naming it and knowing the limits of what this is now and what it might become down the line is valuable. And I'm thankful to both of you for participating in this and sharing your perspective on both sides of this particular equation. Thank you both for for talking with me this evening. Yeah,
1: guys, thanks for talking, especially like across all of our various time zones. It has been so good to be with you.
0: Thank you. Thank thank you. Again, this is going to be a, a joint episode between Revcovery and Exvangelical, so check it out in whichever feed you follow.
1: Yes, and give us yep. the answers if you figure it out.
0: Yes, absolutely. Even though we solved yeah, everything, we did solve that. everything, so yes. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thanks, you. Thank you. Thank you, bro.